0: Thanks so much to Catherine Tucker Wyndham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 years old about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci. I'm here to introduce you to our show tonight, the February 2019 version of True Tales Live coming to you um, from Portsmouth Public Media TV channel 98 in New Hampshire. Due to January storm, this is actually our first show of the year and it is thus titled birth and beginnings thanks so much to those watching and listening but especially thanks to our studio audience we want you to give yourselves a hand for being here Great. our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first person experience stories stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance that we are happy to give to tellers, this is not a competition. We don't have any ranking or scoring or judging. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us, and bind us together, and that is why we're here. As I said, the theme for tonight's show is Birth and Beginnings. We'll hear from six tellers. Kathy Wolf, Chris Newcomb, Dane Peters, Martin Rumscheidt, Mary McKeever, and then I, Amy Antonucci, will be back up to tell you a story. Everyone has a 10-minute time limit for their telling. And each person will be introduced to you by Pat Spaulding. Following the storytelling, you can stay tuned for an interview. Tonight, David will be talking to Martin Rumscheidt. But first, the stories. So let's welcome Pat up here to introduce our first teller to you.
1: Thanks, Amy. Okay, we've got uh, a great audience turnout, and we've got some fine, terrific storytellers. We're going to start out with Kathy Wolf. Now, she is the one teller who's actually going to tell us a story on what was going to be the February theme, Better Late Than Never. And so Kathy will be up first with that theme, and then the rest will come in with Birth and Beginnings. Kathy lives in Kittery, Foreside, Maine, with a couple of cats. She likes to tell stories. Eat chocolate and go to pot Lutz, luck. Go to potlucks, where <laughs> she likes to tell stories about eating chocolate. Back in the late 1960s and early 70s, a time that I do remember well, when she and other feminists were learning guy things like how to change oil, jump a car battery, chug a beer, swear out loud, etc. Kathy missed one guy lesson. How to throw a punch. Better late than never? Well, turns out it was a skill that brought her mixed feelings about our darker sides. So let's hear her story How to Punch. Come on up, Kathy.
2: We are in a dark cavernous bar on the edge of Arachlion, a city on the Greek island of Crete. Both the rock music and the air conditioning are jacked up to max. I guess in anticipation of a crowd of sweaty dancers, although the place is almost empty right now. My boyfriend Bobby and I had left Piraeus early that morning to try and find some place with less noise and less air pollution. Arachlion was not that, but we were too tired to travel any farther that day. On the street we met a man about our age, a Greek named George. George said he knew some place we could stay, his sister's house, she rented out rooms, but in return he insisted we go for a drink with him to this bar. I only wanted to be outside watching that Greek sunset. Instead, though, we were hunched over our uzos, trying to be, if not completely polite, at least not ugly Americans. Dance with me, George says. No, I'm sorry. I'm just—I am too tired. Oh, come on, just one dance. His voice had a little edge. Has a little edge to it. Bobby leans over in front of me and touches George lightly on the arm. Hey, she doesn't want to dance, okay? He's not belligerent, just firm. George ignores him entirely. See this? He says, pulling back his sleeve, showing a jagged scar. Knife. Pulls down his shirt to reveal another scar on his shoulder. So I don't know why your boyfriend wants to cause trouble. The heat starts in my gut. It radiates down my legs and out my feet. It goes down my arms and out my fingers. Everything takes on a brightness, the mirror ball over the dance floor, the exit sign, the smoke from our cigarettes. I catch George's eye. If you touch him, I will eat your eyes out. I have no idea where those words came from. (laughs) I I had never said anything even remotely like that in my life. I don't even know how you would go about eating out somebody's (laughs) eyes. But I do know in that moment I felt a rush, an aliveness similar to a feeling I had had once right before a fairly serious car accident. George pushes himself away from the table stands up and gives me a rat like grin. You and your boyfriend be out of my sister's house by 8 a.m. and he left. If it had come to a fight I imagine I would have tried my arms probably flailing all over the place and someone would have said she fights like a girl it wasn't until several years later when I was living in Chicago that I finally learned how to throw a proper punch and my teacher was my roommate in an apartment in Chicago Laurel. Laurel had dropped out of Barnard to fight the revolution or uh, be part of the revolution and she was in Chicago working in the national office of SDS (coughs) Uh, students for a Democratic Society. It was a major anti war organization, for those of very few who are in this audience wouldn't know. <laughs> uh, wouldn't know what SDS is. Um, in her day job, she was an a, a insurance actuary. She once spent, spent an entire week, maybe longer, figuring out the relative monetary worth of every animal in the Lincoln Park Zoo and in her spare time she took karate lessons I once watched her try to break a board over her forehead she tried three times and failed later that night holding an ice pack over the Red Welch she said simply not enough focus <laughs> board breaking aside Laurel had the punch down she would move across our small living room floor each step a punch and a huff (laughs) (laughs) she gave me some good pointers for instance when you make the fist one two three when you take the punch one fluid motion and always always have clear focused intent I left Chicago I ended up in New Hampshire I had a lover he left but he called and said let's get together and made a date for the afternoon I showed up he did not I went to his apartment and knocked on the door when he answered it I saw a woman lounging on the couch behind him and without a word but with clear Focused intent. I let go with a smooth left right to his jaw. He hit the ground. The horrible thing about this incident was that it felt good physically, emotionally, at least initially. With only a few minutes, in only a few minutes, I really regretted it. But I couldn't deny a visceral satisfaction. I learned uh, actually a couple of years later that the only comment from the woman on the couch when the man hit the floor was, she must really love you. (laughs) (laughs) So despite the scene in the Greek bar and the lover punch and a Strong hesitation on my part to participate in nonviolent civil disobedience for fear that uh, I might slug a police officer if he touched me to drag me to a police wagon. I still considered myself to be a pacifist. I still do. The kind of pacifist who likes Quentin Tarantino movies, but a pacifist. <laughs> I realized, though, along the way that all of us are capable of doing things we believe only other people people not like us would do what in the world is this appalling appeal at least at times of violence sure it it can be a response to feelings anger frustration despair Oh, fear of course and jealousy it can come as part of revenge or or even a demand for justice but I think there's something more something else it might be the pure physicalness of it the nuanced world the endless rational options the burden of civilization Even the consequences slide away and there you are with everything, at least in that moment, reduced to knowing how to punch.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Kathy. That was beautiful. (laughs) And now, Chris Newcomb, he's new to True Tales Live, first time, came all the way from Maine, as did Kathy, a little further up though, (laughs) Uh, from Gorham, Maine. He's a teacher of gifted and talented students from grades three to eight. He's a writer and a storyteller, an actor in lots of plays, commercials, independent films, and he is a new recruit to the Ukulele. Who is loving it? (laughs) What's not to love about playing a ukulele? Other ukulele players in the audience here? All right, we got one. She's a storyteller, too. It must be a thing. (laughs) Chris has figured out that it's not the big events in his life that have opened up new doors for him, but the tiniest little questions that have challenged his long-held beliefs. These little questions have led him to his most profound life-altering New Beginnings. Please welcome Chris Newcomb with his story, Think You Might Be Wrong.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Um, When I first thought about this new beginnings and a new life, I got thinking about, uh, you know, what that really means and, and lots of stories went and experiences went in my mind. And then I realized it's more about when those new beginnings happen, it's more like a life altering experience you know something that really changed my life and you'd think that the story i was going to tell you tonight would be about the story of the time that i had my first date with a man and he fell dead 20 minutes into the date. i mean stone dead bang but that wasn't that big of a life-altering experience (laughs) well it was for him (laughs) and i don't mean that i don't but it, it wasn't for me And I think that's because I'm in my late 60s and I'm looking around this room and it's no shock that we're going. We're on our way out. (laughs) We're still having a great time, but it's not a shock. So that wasn't really the life altering experience. And it is, it's these tiny little things, these questions that have come to my life, these tiny little things. you know, for example, I, had, I used to teach in Falmouth, Maine, and I had the greatest job. I was teaching third, fourth, and fifth grade, gifted and talented program, and this was before any standards for my program. I got to just play. We did, I, did, I was a creative guy. I did creative problem solving. I did inventions. We made movies. We just did crazy stuff. It was so much fun, but because I was always thinking in this terms of like out there ideas, I would sometimes wonder, ooh, am I going to go to the edge of reality? I might slip off. So I wrote this good friend of mine, Doug. It was back in the days we wrote letters. And uh, I said, you know, I mentioned that to him. I said, I feel like I might just slip and fall right off the edge of reality. And, you know, two weeks go by. I forget all about it. And I get this note card from Doug. And inside, all it says is, there's an edge. <laughs> there's an edge. That changed my life. I had had this limited view of reality, that there was some, like if I got to the edge, I was going to fall right over, and that maybe people with white coats were going to come after me. But you know, the the end of my reality is the beginning of another, and just the beginning of another, and the beginning of another. And in that simple little question of, oh, there's an edge? It changed my life. It opened doors. It was fantastic. Uh, Not long after that, a friend of mine, Paul, (coughs) we were talking, and I was frustrated, and I said something along the lines of, you know, Paul, I just... God, I just wish I knew, you know, what's the point, you know? And sometimes with the times we're living in, you think, what's the point? And he just looked at me like I was an idiot. And he said, what do you mean, the point? There's no point. And I said, said, no, there's as many points as you want to make. You just choose the point. Just go for it. That may seem simple now, but at that time in my life, that opened doors for me because I had this thing that I was supposed to know what we're supposed to do. What's the point? Where do we go? And suddenly it was, no, no, no. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure. What's the point? Well, what do you want the point to be? And go for it. Again, tiny little thing opened doors and changed my life. It was just amazing. Um, About 10 years ago, I was in New Orleans, and I'm walking along, and I was in the Marigny District, just north of the French Quarter. And uh, I'm walking along, and I see this... Uh, streets, uh, a sign, a handmade sign that's on a uh, telephone pole, and it said, handwritten, it said, uh, think you might be wrong. Now, at the time, when I first saw it, I was kind of angry. I thought, who are you, whoever you are, who do you think are, tell me I'm wrong? And then I thought, wait a second, (laughs) I don't know who wrote this, but they didn't say you are, I am wrong, they just said, think you might be wrong. And I'm usually pretty open-minded, I said, well, wait a second, what am I wrong about? And I don't remember what the specific thing was that day, but I remember when I thought about that, suddenly I went, some assumption in my life. And I went, oh, of course, of course. And again, a change, these tiny little things. The story I want to tell you as the last sort of incident experience of this was in uh, April, as a teacher, I get a week off. And I tend to go down to Cape Cod and I go to Wellfleet because my sister has an old uh, Cape Cod house there. It's an old 1750s Cape, and it's just a great old place. And when I get down there, I'm the only one there. They, they live in New York, and, you know, I'm the first one to open up the house. And uh, one of the things I love about being there is that I can leave the cottage unlocked, and I can leave the car unlocked and leave the keys in the car. And it just makes me feel so good. It reminds me of when I used to live on Peaks Island. Not only didn't we have locks, or keys, we didn't have locks, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> but, so not only do I leave the keys in the car, I leave them right in the ignition. And every time I think about it, it just makes me feel really good. So one day I get up, and I'm going to go to the beach, it's early, and I get dressed. I go to the dresser, I get my cell phone, I get my wallet, put them in my pockets, and I head out to the car. And as I get to the door, I do the old check, you know, wallet, cell phone, keys, oh, there's no, oh, the keys are in the car. And I get a big smile on my face, I go to the car, I open the car, there's no keys. And I think, and I look, you know, on the floor, I look in the compartment next to, nothing, no keys. And I think, well, okay, maybe out of force of habit, when I got out of the car, I put the keys in my pocket. So I go back into the bedroom, and I look in the pants I wore the day before, check, there's no keys. And I'm looking around, I can't figure this out, and then I look on the dresser, and right where the cell phone and the wallet had been, there were my keys. And they'd been there the entire time. So I pick them up, and I'm heading out the door, and I think to myself, why didn't I see these keys? And the only reason I didn't see them was because I had decided ahead of time that they weren't there, (laughs) you know? And I thought to myself, how many things in any given day do I not see because I've decided ahead of time they're not there? And that simple little thought, what a change of life. And so I ask you today to think, what's a story you may have told yourself? What's some assumption, some little tiny thing that if you were to just say, hmm, think I might be wrong, how might that lead you to a new beginning? Thanks.
1: Well, Chris, um, I think I'm old, but I might be wrong. (laughs) I hope so. Dane Peters is coming up next. He lives with his wife, Chris, in Greenland, New Hampshire. Yay! (laughs) Another fan of Greenland. (laughs) Our David. Dane writes articles, tells stories, keeps a blog, Dane's education blog, and is the author of two books. He reads to preschoolers at least once a week, devotes quality time to his four grandchildren, consults with schools throughout the US and China, and is the vice president of the Seacoast Repertory Theater Board of Trustees and a member of Senior Repertory Theater and Acting Troupe for Senior Citizens. Needless to say, Dane is a devoted volunteer who says he loves telling stories with True Tales Live, that would be us, one of which we are about to hear right now. It is titled well, it's got two possible titles. Either I Need the Relief or The Value of Child Care. Come on up, Dane. Thank you, Pat.
4: So in the beginning, when I was born, we'll go back to the 1940s. If you remember, The Greatest Generation basically had it set up where mom took care of the children. And that was her job. Dad went off to work and was the breadwinner. And that was well and good, but then all of a sudden, beyond the 1940s, came the Generation X. Those were our children, the Baby Boomer children, and eventually the Millennials. And all of a sudden, these youngsters... Came back from college, and they had these gigantic debts to pay off college, their college tuition and education, and so both parents had to find some way to work, uh, and that's when you started hearing the words au pair, babysitter, child caregivers. Uh, they were the ones who were enlisted. To take care of the children while both mom and dad went off to work. We, as baby boomers, my wife and I, were caught in sort of in the middle between the generation, uh, the greatest generation, and the Gen Xers and the millennials. And essentially, my wife had a degree and was a teacher and was doing her career, uh, but she decided she was going to take off, she was going to stop working, take care of the children when the first one was born and not stop until the last one was in school full-time. And that was kind of unusual. People looked askance at her, what? That's all? Well, my head was thinking about this back in 2012. My mom was 92 years old. She was living in an assisted living facility. And I would often take her out to lunch and we'd get an ice cream together. And we're in the car, and we're driving to the place where we're going to eat, and I said, Mom, um, you know, I remember back when I was little, you put me in a nursery school, Mrs. Bradshaw's nursery school, and you weren't working, and Dad was working two jobs. Why? She looks at me. I needed the relief. (laughs) And, and we had a good relationship, you know, and she would say to me,
3: you're such a pain in the ass. <laughs>
4: and I said, moi? What are you talking about? And she said, we've got ten minutes, just hang on. She said it was, I remember that first time when you were about six months old, you were in the crib, and I. it was nap time, and I was was listening for you, but I didn't hear you, so I opened the door... And there you were, jubilant, laughing your head off. What you did is you got into your diaper, got your feces, spread it on the wall, on the crib, your face, and you were laughing. It was hilarious. But I'm the one who had to clean it up. (laughs) And then there was the next time, about four or five months later, you were in your room, and I had shut the door so I could go do some housework, and I wasn't hearing anything. And all of a sudden, I thought, something's going on. I opened the door to your room. There you are again, as jubilant as ever, laughing. You had gotten into the vacuum cleaner, took out the bag, and the dirt was all over the room, the dust and everything. And I had to deal with this day after day after day. So finally, one of the things I decided I was going to do when you were about two and a half, three years old, is I took an... Tied a rope around your waist with about 400 knots.
3: And I I
4: led you outside, took the other end of the rope, tied it to a tree, just like you'd do with a dog. And there you were. And I did this on a regular basis. And I didn't feel guilty because I could look out the window and see you tied to the tree. Till this one day, I was upstairs cleaning or something, and I heard a knock at the door. And I go to the door, it's the next-door neighbor, and she's got you by the rope." And she said, Danny was walking down the street with this rope around him. I thought you'd want to know." <laughs> I took you in, And, and then, then there was this time, there was this time when I had to go shopping, so I took you to Auntie Joe's, my sister, and uh, you know, and uh, she was going to take care of you while I went shopping. And we went in, and this house, had a, she had a stove. It was a real hot stove. It was a coal-fired stove, and it was for cooking, and it was for heat for the house. And I'd go near her, and they'd say, no, 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 don't go there, Danny. Don't go there. Hot, hot, hot. And I'd okay. So my mother left to go shopping. My aunt was back at the counter doing her thing, and all of a sudden she heard me scream bloody murder. She turns around, and I'm there like this, and my hands were all blistered. so And she was so mortified. She just felt so neglectful. And I came back after shopping, my mother is saying, and she's in tears. My, you know, my sister's in tears. And she said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. He put his hands on the stove. My, and I said, ah, don't worry about it, that's dainty. I just... <laughs> I just Almost a, like, I would say, like, he deserved it. <laughs> anyway, the coup de gras before the real coup de gras was when I took a half dozen eggs and I cracked them in my mother's fine silverware drawer. <laughs> I was fit to be tied, she said. She said, I took you, grabbed you, threw you in the carriage and raced off to my sister's house. And I said, take them. I don't know what I'm going to do with him. I'm afraid. <laughs> well, the thing she said, the thing that really, really corked me big time was when I thought I was going to finally get the relief I deserved. You were going to kindergarten. And you would be taken care of all day, five days a week. I couldn't wait. Well, we get in the car. I didn't. I didn't drive back then, and the next-door neighbor took us, and you were not happy. You knew something was up. And we got to the school, and she's dragging me in the school. We get into the kindergarten classroom, and I'm screaming, and the teacher came up to me, and she said, I'll, I'll take him, I'll hold him, and you just walk away. And then all of a sudden, I
3: screamed
4: bloody murder. You had chomped down on my ankle because you were so angry, you were not going to do this. Well, the teacher said, I'm sorry, Mrs. Peters, you, he can't stay here like this. And I remember, I remember you sitting in the back seat. (laughs) I won. Well, needless to say, those beginnings were tough beginnings. And I was blessed to have two sons who didn't say to my wife she had to, she needed relief somehow. (laughs) And, of course, uh, the side story is my brother, who was four years older than me, was, oh, he's Mr. Perfect. (laughs) I don't know if you've experienced any of that in your own (laughs) lifetime, whether it's your children or your life, but he was Mr. Perfect. And, of course, that's probably partly why my beginnings were so uproarious. And, but my parents were wonderful parents, don't get me wrong, and they loved me. And my mother said, just before we, I pulled into the parking space to where we were going to have lunch, and she said, above all that, I still love you very, very much. And of course, a tear comes to my eye, and I think, oh, okay, good, we're, we're still friends anyway. <laughs> but those were the beginnings, thank you.
1: Thanks, Dane. I quit kindergarten, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, I wouldn't stick around, not the, not the first round. Um, I, I came back, though, after a, another year at home, <laughs> father and my mom. <laughs> Next up, we have Martin Rumschleit. And um, he now lives in Dover with his wife, Nancy Lukens. He was born, however, in Nazi Germany in 1935. He experienced the war started by Hitler and the utter defeat of his home country. In 1952 his family left Europe for Canada where Martin studied theology at McGill University. He was ordained in 1961 in the United Church of Canada, served three congregations, and in 1970 took teaching positions at universities in Windsor, Ontario and Halifax, Nova Scotia. After retiring in 2003, he has focused his ongoing research on the Holocaust and Jewish-Christian relations. The title of his story is A Scary Escape. Come on up, Martin.
5: just have a question for you, Dane. Is it safe for me to come and sit down again? Next <laughs> sure. <to> you? sure! <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> we are stuck on a farmer's muddy field, and man, were we ever stuck. It is an evening in November 1946, somewhere, near the Hartz Mountains in Germany. Ahead of us on the left is a house where we might go to get help. The trouble with that house is, it is where the British border guards were stationed. Fifty yards behind us is another house. We could have gone there. That's where the Soviet border guards were stationed. And right between these two houses lies the border that we want to cross, but the road is blocked and we can't move that heavy barrier. Our driver in the truck decides to go around it through a field and wouldn't you know it, we are stuck. What were we Romscheid's up that evening? The Allies, the liberating Allies had set us free from that burden of Hitler. But the Americans and the Soviets (coughs) were eager to bring German industrialists, scientists, researchers, and their families to to the USA and the USSR respectively. My father was on the list for the Soviets, a prospect that he and my mother didn't find very promising. We were living in the Soviet sector near the town of Nordhausen, and the, the nearest British town uh, in the British sector was Göttingen. One night, my father walked across the border. Uh, you know, at that time, it didn't occur to people to build walls on borders. <laughs> That's why he got across. <coughs> He and mother had made a plan. He was to organize our escape into the west and mother our escape out of the east. That was their plan. They would have Christmas early Christmas parties in each of those two houses for the soldiers. Dad would join the Brits and mother would be with me, my older brother, and my baby sister. He bought three cases of scotch to keep the four border guards warm. (laughs) (laughs) For the party hosted by the Russians, before the Russians, my mother brought three cases of vodka and she hired four ladies of the night to keep the men occupied. By the time we arrived at at the crossing point, the parties had been going on in high gear for more than a couple of hours. But we, that is to say, the truck driver, our maid who had been with us in our family for years, my older brother Fritz, my mother, and I holding a nine-month-old baby, my sister Margaret. We were stuck in the mud, caught right in the middle between the two houses. To make matters worse, the truck had no muffler. It was an old pre-war opal truck, wretchedly noisy. The noise that that unmuffled truck was so horrendous that one British soldier wanted to check out what was making all that noise. Father knew very well what that noise was, and he turned to the British soldier and said, do you really want to help some bunch of drunk Russians out of their misery? Come on, have another scotch, and gave him a full bottle. (laughs) (laughs) It worked. Mm -hmm. And so did the efforts to get the truck unstuck, with pushing, backing up, going forward and back, and going forward and back. The Russians were too preoccupied with vodka and the ladies of the night, of course, but we had escaped. I try to remember what I felt as I sat in the cab of the truck. I wasn't scared, I remembered. It was such a tremendous adventure to be trying all these surrounding forces that could do things to us, and we were going to fool them. It was a scary situation, but not for me at that time, because I had a job, I had to hold my baby sister, nine months old, and that was the most important thing for me. We got out, but if we had not gotten out, If we had been taken to the Soviet Union, I wouldn't be here tonight and tell you here in America, in the Queen's English, and with a German accent, how we got out. Instead, I guess, I would be telling Russians in their language how we got to their country. Mom and Dad didn't tell us about that evening until very much later. So the details of what went on in the houses I didn't know for a long time. When they told us I was already well into my studies to seek ordination and make theology my life's vocation. I look back at that, and with this note I want to end, I am grateful to God for the people who made the vodka and the scotch. (laughs) that was consumed that evening, and I am more grateful to God for the three ladies of the night, our guardian angels. (laughs) Thank
1: Thank you, Martin. That was indeed a deep adventure story. Mary McKeever is coming up next. She lives in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She grew up in the Air Force, lived in lots of different places, but loves her home in New England best. Mary worked as a teacher for 40 years. Now retired, she says she enjoys watching school kids troop by her house on their way to and from school. Because she no longer has to concern herself with homework assignments, she reads as much as she wants, whenever she wants. She knits and spins yarn, as well as tails. (laughs) Mary's story tonight will introduce us to her 11-year-old self, a girl who begins to understand compassion and responsibility while caring for pheasant eggs. Her story is titled, The Hatchling. Come on up, Mary.
6: When I was 11, the summer I was 11, I spent most of my time outside longing for adventures, avoiding household chores, and trying, I think, to become feral. I had (laughs) learned the word feral and I liked it. So I spent time practicing being very quiet, watching, and hiding. I was playing hide-and-go-seek with my brothers and my sister and I hid in the tall weeds next to the, in the field next to the neighbor's house. I folded myself down, scooped up my knees, put my head on them. And there in front of me was a bird. One of those chicken-shaped birds, a grouse maybe, or a pheasant, sitting on its nest. She was exactly the color of the weeds and grass around her. Everything except for her bright, black eye. Maybe she had blinked and that caught my attention. I sat for a while while, watching her. Then I remembered we were playing hide-and-go-seek and if I didn't want the bird to get found, so I unfolded myself and backed away and left. I was very pleased that the bird did not take flight when I went. Over the next few days, I went back and did the same thing. Sat, felt the sun on my shoulders, watched the bird watching me. One time I watched from farther away while she turned the eggs carefully adjusting each one to get it right in the right position and settling herself back down. The next day when I went back, I could see the eggs, greenish-brown in their nest, and there was the mother bird lying beside the nest. I went up and touched her head and it flopped over. I didn't see any blood or torn up feathers, but she was dead. I put my hand on her chest and there was no heartbeat. I put my hand on the eggs, and they were still warm. The impulse flared up in me. I had to keep them warm. I raced home, crashed into the house, uh, ignored my mother's exclamation, rummaged around in the back of the closet until I found my Easter basket, Uh, grabbed two uh, rags out of the rag bag and ironed them hot, pelted back out to the field. I put one rag down, eased the nest onto it, scooped it up and put it into the basket, and covered it up with the, other, with the other blanket. And I sat there and thought I had to keep them warm. I didn't give much thought at all to what would happen if they hatched, but I had to keep them warm until they did. So I moved them closer to the house. There was a blackberry thicket where the brambles went like that, and you could get underneath and hide. Um, I put them there. Nobody would find them. I made a plan. Uh, Every few hours I would iron a baby blanket from the rag bag, I would take it out, switch the blankets and keep them warm. I did that at uh, sundown um, in the confusion of getting my little brothers to bed. Um, I set the alarm clock for midnight and put the alarm clock and my flashlight under the pillow. At midnight when the alarm went off, I went out the window. Uh, I was used to going out at the window. <laughs> <laughs> the flashlight made a little bobbing light as I went along. I switched the blankets, warm one, for, took the cool one back. As I clambered back in the window, I felt nothing but satisfied. My little brother fussed awake every morning before dawn, and when he did, I went out the window again into the cool gray morning with a new blanket. At midday, I turned the eggs. Um, And that's the way it went for several days. I settled into a kind of double life. There was my ordinary summertime life, and then there was my secret life of taking care of these eggs. I got more and more tired. It got harder and harder to do. I had to drag myself out of bed at night. But I did it. Then one evening at supper, my mother said that Remember, reminded me that tomorrow was the day that I had agreed to go out with the neighbors on their boat out onto the lake. Um, I would get a boat trip. They would get help with their bratty daughter Kay, who was six, and listen to, all, listen to almost nobody. I uh, loved being on the boat. Um, and we could maybe go fishing. We could explore an island where they usually moored the boat and hung out on the beach. And I thought the neighbors said they'd be back by supper time. I made a plan. I set the alarm clock as usual, went to bed. I slept through the alarm. I slept through breakfast the next morning. My mother woke me up with, Mary, get up. What are you doing? I thought you were getting ready. I grabbed my things, got dressed, made myself a peanut butter, one slice peanut butter sandwich and washed it down with orange juice and there was Kay banging on the door. It was a great day for a boat trip. It was sunny, it was not too hot, it was a little breezy. We had a good time on the beach, Kay was in a good mood. Um, we explored the island, we dug in the sand, we swam. We had cold fried chicken and key lime pie for lunch, things I never got at home. And Kay took, fell asleep sometime in the afternoon under some willow branches and I sat and read. I don't know what made me remember the nest, but suddenly I did and I got cold all over, the way I always did when I knew I'd messed up. I looked at the sun and tried to judge what time it was. I tried to think of a way to get the neighbors to go home early. Well, they had said that we'd be home by dark. I couldn't tell them the truth. They would tell my parents. My parents would give me a speech about impulse and responsibility, about planning ahead and following through. I didn't want to hear any Lectures about responsibility. I knew it was irresponsible to forget the nest In the end, I just paced up and down the beach and waited It was after sundown when we went home The little short trip back up the river seemed to take forever. I Got away from the neighbors as fast as I could politely. I endured my mother's questions What had we done all day played had Kay been good? Yes. Had I thanked the neighbors for the day? Yes. My eggs uh, avoided my sister's questions too, said the same things to her. When I had the chance, I ironed another blanket and went, grabbed my flashlight, and went back out to the bramble thicket. I hung the light up in the, in the branches so it shone down. I put my hand on the blanket. It was cold and damp. I peeled it back. There were the eggs no one had disturbed them but one of them had hatched there next to its shell was a hatchling it was dead its feathers matted and wet its head looked impossibly large and its neck very skinny I picked up a piece of the shell and put it back down I felt its beak and its tiny stubby wings I put my hand on the other eggs they were cool to touch two of them had little cracks in them like they were maybe beginning to hatch too. I put my warm blanket over them and turned the flashlight off and sat and thought for a moment. I thought about impulse and responsibility and how hard it was to take care of something properly. I'm sorry, I said to them. The next day, I took a shovel and went back and dug a hole as deep as I could next to the, next to the brambles I put the nest with its blanket, my hatchling, and its other eggs into the bottom of the hole. I broke up the Easter basket and put that in on top of them. I scooped in the soil with my hands and patted it down firm. I brushed the handprints away from the soil and I said, I'm sorry again, this time to myself.
1: I'm glad I heard that story. I'm not sorry I heard it. That was beautiful. (laughs) Amy Antonucci, our own True Tales Live announcer, has worked with this program since its inception in 2014. When Amy's not telling stories and running storytelling workshops right here at PPM-TV, she's tending to her bees, poultry, goats, and gardens at her homestead in Barrington, New Hampshire, Living Land Permaculture Homestead. Amy was named Lead Organic Gardener of 2017 by the Northeast Organic Farming Association of New Hampshire. She has been telling stories on our stage for the past few years about taking care of her elderly father. Tonight, we'll hear a very different part of her life about a very different part of her life in the story, The Midwife. Come on up, Amy. Oh, there you are. Okay.
0: There is an amazing moment when I can see a nose, and maybe a little bit of some eyes, and then no matter how many times I've seen this before, I am gripped by the fear and the conviction that this isn't going to work. What have we gotten ourselves into? When Steve and I bought land a decade before to start our sustainable permaculture homestead, getting dairy goats had been his idea. I wasn't sure I was up for it. I mean, when my plants or a chicken or a beehive struggled, suffered or died, that was hard enough. But these were going to be fuzzy, furry, cute mammals with big eyes. This is a level of connection and new responsibility, and I was afraid of failing them. But Steve convinced me that what we would get out of it was worth it, so we decided to try. Being committed to organic and natural methods meant I had even fewer role models and very few um, encouraging voices. Instead, people really wanted to tell me their horror stories of sick and dead animals, (laughs) but I persisted. I found information and people to talk to, and I watched my animals closely, and they thrived. However, whenever you work with natural systems, if not anything, you learn that you, no matter what, can't control everything. The birthing process is one of those things. Every goat birthing, also known as kidding season, starts the fall before with a goat breeding season. Even the goats, even though goats had at first been Steve's idea, I was the planner and the organizer in our world. So I took on arranging the couplings. I would go to the shelf and pull between the bee record charts and the garden uh, journal my goat sex journal, (laughs) in which I would take extensive notes. Now, I think this might sound a little creepy, and I know that it actually always surprises me to hear myself say it, having been brought up a good, modest Catholic girl, but the truth is that knowing when conception occurs lets me know when I need to be in the barn for the birth. That fall was our fifth season of breeding and it was Lily, our goats, second. Despite my close attention to their sex lives, I really wasn't sure which visit with the buck had succeeded. So that spring, my calendar had three weeks highlighted in which I needed to be paying close attention. Although most goat births are uncomplicated, You really don't want to miss that one where the kid is in in the wrong position or the doe has a retained placenta or a vaginal prolapse or one of the many other terrifying-sounding issues on the long list of possible problems, all of which can end up with dead kids or moms. There had also recently been reports of bears in our area eating baby goats. So we really wanted to be there to clean up that afterbirth right away. We set up the baby monitor in the house, so we didn't have to actually sleep in the barn. And I am very grateful for this technological advance, however, it still doesn't really give you a good night's sleep. Even when not in labor, the goats aren't silent, they chat with each other, and they chew their hay really loudly, and they enjoy bashing the barn with their heads. And then, dawn starts to come and the rooster starts crowing. (laughs) Lily was acting like she was nearing the end of a pregnancy. I took out my goat sex journal and identified, yes, we were near a potential due date. If you want to ask me how I can be sure one of my goats is pregnant, I would have to say, I can't. Well, unless I were to buy my own sonogram machine which kind of goes against our whole idea of sustainable frugal living. A goat has a rumen in which they digest their food that is big and the little kids are just tucked on in inside her so after a great day of eating she can look way more pregnant than on the day she she kids. But we have learned some signs for instance Lily was acting a little clumsy kind of bumping into things and tripping. She was lying down more and when it was warm out, her breathing kind of resembled a pant. One afternoon, after a few nights of our disturbed sleep routine, she started to act even more uncomfortable. She was lying down and getting up and lying back down. She went off from the rest of the herd into a stall and she used her front hooves to dig a little nest. This is it! Steve! Get in here! Now! I yelled. While I am organized and attentive to detail, Steve is steadier. He is calmer and less squeamish than I am. He, in fact, even has some EMT, or Emergency Medical Technician, training. I also called a friend who was interested in goats and in witnessing the blessed event. I told her, hurry, once it starts, it can be over fast. I didn't want her to drive all the way over and miss the whole thing. So the three of us closed Lily's stall door and stood and watched, waiting for the moment we might be needed. And we waited for a half an hour, an hour, and then an hour and a half. Maybe we slowed her down by locking her away from the rest of the herd. Or maybe your labor slow because we were looking at her so intently. I'm sorry, everyone. I really thought it was time, I told them. My friend went home and Steve and I went inside to make some dinner within earshot of that uh, monitor. I looked back at my goat sex journal to see where we were at. And then I started to fret about whether we should put Lily back with the other goats. As a herd animal, being away from the others would definitely stress her out. Steve really thought she should have her own protected space, though, in case she had kids while we were sleeping. Although I seriously doubted my ability to sleep at this point. <laughs> she continued to talk a lot. Was that because she was in labor or because she missed the other goats? This was her second pregnancy. I wondered if she had any idea... What was going on. I jumped up at every noise she made only to have Steve tell me don't worry calm down. But around 11 p.m. her cries became unquestionably louder. We grabbed clean towels and our box of emergency kidding supplies and rushed out to the barn. Sure enough Lily was lying down she was pushing and an appropriate amount of goo also known as a lot, was coming out of her backside. Her ears lay back as she concentrated, straining. We got into position, Steve sitting by her nose, stroking her face, me trying to watch her other end. She kept getting up and repositioning, and I kept chasing around her rear. (laughs) She's been this. Been at this forever, hasn't she? This is taking too long, isn't it? Something must be wrong, don't you think? Is it stuck? I can't see anything. Oh my God, do I have to glove up and try to get in there and feel what is going on? Should we call someone or give her something? You know, this was your idea to have these goats. (laughs) Steve stroked Lily's head. He seemed so peaceful, at least compared to me. I think she's okay, he said. I was torn between being comforted by his calm and being infuriated by it. (laughs) Then a little hoof appeared. (laughs) Just a little hoof, and then something else started peeing. Yes, a nose, a little nose. Lily started to push even harder and it was now accompanied by goat screams. I wondered if a neighbor might call 911 leading to a very (laughs) unique entry in the police log. The nose poked out further showing the mouth and a little tongue and the closed eyes and then the kid seemed stuck. The larger part of its head and its shoulders still had to emerge. And this seemed very unlikely. I mean, the size of the opening simply did not correspond to the size of the creature attempting to exit it. (laughs) Who had designed this system? And why had we put our trust in it? Just before I reached my breaking point, Lily gave a big push, and amazingly, the head was out and then the shoulders and then in one quick fluid motion the whole rest of that little goat spat out and it was time for me to be useful. I jumped in and I directed it to a towel. I took my fingers and I opened the sack around its mouth so it could take its first breath. Lily jumped up and spun around and started licking it dry like an expert mom. Oh. My God, I can't believe it. She did it. It worked. Do you think there are more? Could there be more? Oh, I really hope there aren't more. I don't think I can take any (laughs) more. But then with work to do and the kid to focus on, tension started to ease. In fact, it was almost a surprise when a few minutes later, a couple grunts and pushes, and there we had another little orange goat that i could direct onto another towel and start cleaning up both kids were perfect within five minutes lily had them all cleaned up and they were standing by the age of twenty minutes they had figured out how to nurse and had their first satisfying meal lily had all sorts of happy brain chemicals going on helping her you know get those good good mom traits going, she looked satisfied and happy too. Without the help of those new mom brain chemicals, I was simply exhausted. <laughs> As we cleaned up, my thoughts swirled around. It occurred to me to ask Steve, hey, why am I doing the baby catching here? Yeah. You seem to be you know, taking this more in stride. He said, well, you know, you're the female. I, I kind of feel like you should be in charge. Intuitively, I, I agreed that made sense, but I said, yeah, but you know, I never actually had children, and this does not seem to be coming naturally to me. <laughs> That's when I remembered 25 years before, when I was getting my degree in women's studies. I took women's health classes. In fact, I interned at a women's health center trying out the idea of being a midwife. I chose to go in a different direction, but now here I was, all these years later, attending to a birth. And it was probably for the best that it was for a goat. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And thanks to all of tonight's tellers, to our studio audience. Coming up next, we will hear an interview, but first, let me tell you a few other things. Our next True Tales Live will be on Tuesday, March 26th, with a the theme of losses. We still have space for more tellers for that show, and I believe all of our 2019 uh, shows. So please email us at John, you're gonna to have to help me out. There's a new, new site, right? True Tales Live NH1, N-H-1 at Gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to have you join in. Also, if you're interested in telling a story, whether you have our regular teller or brand new, we do invite you to our storytelling workshops. They are here at PPMTV, 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. On the first Tuesday of most months from 7:30 to 9. They're free and open to the public, and the next one is on March 5th. You can watch us on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And anytime as video on demand. You can go to our brand new website, TrueTales NH. True Tales Live. True Tales Live NH org, it's that new. I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> and on there, you can like hit listen or watch or whatever, and it will take you easily to all these things. A gallery. And a gallery of photos, you might find yourself in there. <laughs> so we invite you to go there and check that out. Let's thank a few of those who make this show possible: John lovering Pat spaulding Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys and Chad Cordner. I'm Amy Antonucci, and until our next True Tales live show, and in behalf of all of us here, thank you so much for watching and listening and being here. And now stay tuned because David Franer is going to interview Martin Rumscheidt.